Well, good morning again. Take your Bibles now, turn to Genesis chapter 3. It's amazing this morning, thinking about the text that I was going to preach today. I went on a walk this morning early, and on one sidewalk where there were a lot of trees, I saw a lot of friendly cicadas, um, some out of their shell, some just their shell. And then on another sidewalk, I saw a message, I guess it was meant for me, um, thinking about what I was preaching today, and it said, the earth is flat, written in chalk. And um, on the other, another sidewalk, it said, flat earth, do your research. So um, I think this afternoon I'll be going back and writing Genesis 1 to 2, read it. Um, so if anyone has some chalk, I don't think we have any in our house, if you want to give that to me, I would love to reply to that message today. Genesis 3, we're going to look here at verses 1 to 16, and look at what I'm calling uh, my message entitled, The First Gospel. Beginning in verse 1, now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, indeed has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from, the tree to, but from the fruit of the tree that which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise... She took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain In childbirth, in pain, you will bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Let's pray together. Father, again, we come to just an incredible text of Scripture. We thank you again that what we read is the inerrant Word of God. And Lord, I pray that now you would help us to see the gospel of Christ in this passage. And Lord, that in the midst of Sin, sin and sadness and separation, Lord, that we would see the hope of the gospel. 
Lord, may the words of my mouth, may the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I read Genesis 1 this morning, and I read this because I want you to know that I and all the elders here, all in leadership, believe the opening chapters of Genesis to be the God-breathed Word of God. Amen? I hope that you believe that as well, because it is becoming popular in evangelicalism among professing Christian pastors and authors, among professors and scholars, and it is considered more scholarly today if you question the authenticity of the opening chapters of Genesis. By some, the opening chapters of Genesis are seen and characterized as something known as literal myth or a creation story that was handed down by another culture that has found its way into our Bibles, yet it is inspired because God obviously wanted it to be in the Word of God. This often includes a denial of the historical Adam, a rejection of biblical creation, and replacing creationism with theistic evolution. One author who has made some of these things popular is a man named Peter Inns. Inns is a biblical scholar. He's a theologian. He's a writer. He was a professor of Old Testament and biblical hermeneutics at Westminster Theological Seminary, not too far from here in Philadelphia from 1994 to 2005. And he wrote a book recently entitled The Evolution of Adam. That was from 2012 which attempts to integrate evolution with Paul's belief in a historical Adam. In says that Paul clearly believed that Adam was the historical first man whose disobedience brought sin and death into the world. However, evolution has proven that Paul was wrong about this. So we must find a way to honor the spirit of Paul, of what Paul was up to, even while disagreeing with his facts. My friends, this is very disturbing. And this is not an isolated case. There was a popular pastor here on the East Coast just a few years ago whose church had multiple campuses. I visited one several years ago. Uh, Campuses that were filled weekly with thousands of people. But a man who denied the biblical account of creation and instead believed and taught theistic evolution. And my concern is that so many evangelicals embrace a man like him and promote his books and recommend his church and elevate him to a position of leadership in a growing Christian coalition. And so the question that I always ask is, what are they willing to give up next? The virgin birth of Jesus? Justification by faith alone? The reality of hell? The, the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. Many of you know that I pastored a church on the west side of Indianapolis for 12 years, the Bible Church of Brownsburg. We planted that church in 2002. And we had the, the great privilege of writing our own uh, doctrinal statement, our own bylaws. Uh, church planning is very difficult. Um, but I never got to hear someone say, well, the previous pastor did this or We liked him better. I never had to hear that. So that was a real blessing. But our doctrinal statement that we wrote together as elders, the first paragraph said this, we believe that the 66 books of the Bible are the written revelation of God. 
We teach that the Bible is verbally inspired in every word by the Holy Spirit, inerrant in the original documents, and is the infallible and authoritative word of God. We teach the literal, grammatical, historical interpretation of Scripture, which affirms the belief that the opening chapters of Genesis present creation in six literal days. We believe that his word is the complete revelation of his will for the salvation of men and the divine and final authority for all Christian faith and life. In the beginning, in the beginning of all beginnings, God created the heavens and the earth. God spoke it and it was there, all of it, amen? And out of nothing came everything. It's what we believe. This is the testimony not only of of Moses in Genesis, but also of the writer's of the New Testament. I'm teaching the Gospel of John right now with our college group, and John 1, verse 3, John says, All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Romans 1:20, Paul says, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. Romans 1.25, Paul says, for they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And then Paul in Colossians 1.16, for by him all things were created both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. By the way, those last three verses are from the Apostle Paul, who was writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he was not mistaken. God is the creator of all things. That is what the Bible says, and God has convinced you and me that the Word of God is true, and so we are to believe it and defend it no matter what the cost. Today, as we are going to take a look at, we're going to take a look at Christ in the Old Testament, and I want to show you four things today, and we'll begin with this. Number one, the perfection of creation. The perfection of creation. And I want you just for a moment to go back to Genesis 1 that I read earlier. I just want to highlight some of those verses that show the perfection of God's created order. Genesis 1.1, again, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Verse 4, God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. Drop down to verse 10. God called the dry land earth, and the gathering of the waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. Verse 12, the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed after their kind, and trees bearing fruit with seed in them after their kind, and God saw that it was good. Verse 17, God placed them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, and to govern the day and the night, and to separate the light from the darkness, and God saw that it was good. Verse 21, God created the great sea monsters and every living creature that moves, with which the waters swarmed after their kind and every winged bird after its kind, and God saw that it was good. And then verse 25, God made the beasts of the earth after their kind and the cattle after their kind 
and everything that creeps on the ground after its kind, and God saw that it was good. Now, if you would, read with me again verses 26 to 31 here. Then God said, let us, let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Then God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth and every tree which has fruit yielding seed, it shall be food for you. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the sky and to everything that moves on the earth which has life, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. God is the creator of all things. God is the maker of all things. Creation before the fall was perfect. As we see here, God saw all that he had made, and it was good. God saw all that he had made after making Adam and Eve in his own image, and it was very good. Creation was perfect. Adam and Eve were real historical beings, and they were perfect, and they enjoyed a perfect relationship with God himself. There was only one thing that was not good. God saw that it was not good for the man to be alone, and so he said, I will make him a helper suitable for him. And so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to come upon Adam, and he slept and took one of his ribs and fashioned it into a woman. And the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And the man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. They had a perfect relationship with each other and they had a perfect relationship with a holy God. Nothing was lacking for a time. But that would all change quickly and that would change things forever. And that leads us to our second point today and that is the problem of corruption. The problem of corruption. Back to chapter three, verses one to three. Let me read those verses for us once again. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. The serpent or the snake was one of God's good creatures. God had created the serpent and when he created it, it was good. All that God made was good, as we have seen throughout Genesis chapter 1. The serpent here is a manifestation of Satan, who was a a created angel, who was created good, but had fallen from heaven sometime after what we read in Genesis 1.31 and what we read here in chapter 3, verse 1. We see that he is crafty. 
He is deceitful. And he comes to the woman immediately trying to get her to question God by saying, has God said? If God is really good, would he not want you to be able to eat from every tree of the garden? And Eve says to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. As you know very well, God had not said anything about touching it. He said in chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat from it you will surely die. And so here we see Eve adding to the word of God, revealing that this deceitful creature, Satan, is already having power over her as he is working his poison. And so we see in verses 4 to 5, the serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, Eve had not yet read Ezekiel 28 or Isaiah 14, and it's not really her fault since it hadn't been written yet. She did not know that this snake was a manifestation of Satan who was once an angel in heaven who fell and was banished from heaven because he desired to be like the Most High. Satan says to Eve, you surely will not die a blatant denial of a specific divine pronouncement from the Lord himself. He tells a half-truth to Eve here in verse 5. Their eyes would most definitely be opened if they ate of the forbidden fruit, but the result would be much different from what the serpent promises them here. And so we read in verse 6, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, And that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. And here we see the three aspects of temptation. Satan tempts Eve in the way that he would one day tempt Jesus in the wilderness that we read about in Matthew 4 and in Luke 4. 1 John 2.16, John says, For all that is in the world... The lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. When she saw that the tree was good, here we see the lust of the flesh. When she saw that the fruit was a delight to the eyes, and here we see the lust of the eyes. And when she saw the tree was desirable to make one wise, and here we see the boastful pride of life. Eve was deceived. She believed that the serpent was telling her the truth. She believed that she had misunderstood God. Adam, however, was not deceived. He ate willingly, and this was an act of overt rebellion against a holy God. And that is why we refer to the sin of Adam. One man's sin entered the world and death through sin because of Adam. Look at verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. 
Before Eve was deceived and before Adam rebelled against God, Adam and Eve had a perfect relationship. They had a perfect relationship with God and they had a perfect relationship with one another. You could honestly say they had a perfect marriage. They were naked and unashamed. They did not even know that they were naked. Like the fish of the sea did not know that they were wet. Think about how good and perfect their marriage had to have been. Eve never had to be on Adam about picking up his dirty clothes, telling him to throw them in the dirty laundry because there was no laundry and there were no clothes to wash. Now that, my friends, is paradise. (laughs) And Adam never had to be on Eve about spending too much money at the mall for new clothes, for new shoes, Clothes and shoes that she really didn't need. What a great marriage. (laughs) But once they ate from the forbidden fruit, from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, everything changed. Their eyes were opened. They knew that they were naked and they were no longer unashamed. They were ashamed because of their sin. And so they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. This is absolutely incredible because no one had taught them to do this. There was no one else around. God had not instructed them to do this. And so we see here that this is the nature of sin. It incites guilt and shame. They were no longer innocent like children. They had a new awareness of themselves and of each other, and their marriage would never be the same. And so they made coverings. And then in verse 8, we read that they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. God had come to Adam and Eve before. He had spoken to them. He had given instruction to them. He had had fellowship with them. And he had relationship with them. But this time, when they heard him coming, they were afraid and they hid themselves from him. And this too, we see, is the nature of sin. It causes you to hide. The Garden of Eden, this place of paradise. This was once a place of joy and fellowship with God, now becomes a place of fear and a place of hiding from God. Look at verse 9. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. A few years ago, I heard about a television show, I'm not endorsing this show, I've never seen it, called Naked and Afraid, on the Discovery Channel, where two complete strangers, a man and a woman, something just not right about that, must survive for 21 days with no food, no water, and no clothes. They are naked and they are afraid, for they do not know what awaits them as they are dropped off in the jungle or the desert, wherever they decide to place them. They do not know what wild animals they might encounter, and they do not know how and where they will find food and water. Adam and Eve were naked and afraid because they had sinned against God. 
because they had done exactly what they were forbidden to do and now would have to face God himself and answer for what they had done. By the way, God knew exactly where Adam and Eve were. God is wanting Adam to explain why he was hiding. Verse 11, and he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? God says here, who told you that you were naked? Who even told you what the word naked means? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? Verse 12, the man said, the woman whom you gave to to be with me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Adam willfully sinned against God. Adam rebelled against God's specific command, yet he blames God for giving him Eve as he says, the woman whom you gave to be with me did this. Eve told the truth here. The serpent did indeed deceive her. The serpent caused her to question God, but she should have never listened to the serpent. She was never instructed to do so, but only to listen and obey the voice of God. And so Adam and Eve sinned against God. Their relationship with one another would never be the same. There has only been one perfect marriage in the history of mankind, and that lasted only for a short time. Adam and Eve sinned against God, and their relationship with him would never be the same. They were now separated from God. They were now at odds with God. They were now at war with God, and there were consequences to their sin. First, we see the consequences for Eve in verse 16. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain and childbirth. In pain, you will bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. And then we see the consequences for Adam in 17 to 19. Then to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life both thorns and thistles that shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. I like to say that Adam gets the blame for sin, but Eve pays the price as God increased her pain in childbirth. And so here we see that sin brings corruption, Separation from God, helplessness, hopelessness. But even in the midst of this corruption, there is hope. And that leads to our third point today, which is the promise of the Christ. The promise of the Christ. And we see this in verses 14 and 15. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. The cattle and the rest of creation were cursed because of Adam and Eve's sin against the holy God. 
But the serpent was cursed above all of them. As he tells it, on your belly you will go. And kids love to think about this. The fact that maybe snakes had legs before the curse. It's fun to think about. But within that curse there is a blessing. And there is a promise. And there is a hope of a redeemer. Again, verse 15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. Not only does God curse the physical serpent or the snake, causing him to go on his belly and to eat dust all the days of his life, but he also curses him spiritually. Here we see this curse on Satan when he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. I will put enmity between your seed and her seed. If we were to have a, a Bible trivia game here, or a Bible bowl, and I were to ask the question, what is the first gospel? Many of you would answer by saying Matthew, and you would be right. Of the four gospels, Matthew is the first. Some, someone might say Isaiah 53. I'd give you credit for that one too, as we see that prophecy of the coming of the Christ, of the suffering servant in Isaiah 52 and 53. But the first mention of the gospel is found right here the coming of the Messiah, and the work of the Christ. The woman's offspring that God refers to here is Christ. When he comes, he will destroy the serpent. He will overcome Satan. As the Lord says, he shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Satan would only be able to bruise Jesus on the heel causing him to suffer on the cross. But Jesus would bruise Satan on the head. He would one day crush him with one final blow so that he is ultimately destroyed. Romans 16.20 has to be one of the greatest verses in all of Scripture where Paul says, and the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Paul had to have fun writing that one. As inspired by the Holy Spirit, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. And that leads to our final point this morning, and that is the picture of the cross. The picture of the cross. Verse 20. Now the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. And the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Adam and Eve died spiritually when they sinned against God. They were now separated from him. They were now in need of salvation. They were in need of redemption from their sins. They should have also died physically right then and there because of their disobedience, because of their rebellion against a holy God. But God was gracious to them. God was merciful to them. And instead of killing them, He kills an animal and replaces their fig leaves with animal skins, in essence telling them, you cannot cover your sin on your own, but I will do it for you. And this is a picture of what Christ would one day do on behalf of the sins of his people. This covering that the Lord gave them was imperfect. It did not take away their sins. It it covered them. 
and it reminded them that they were in need of forgiveness. The Old Testament sacrificial system was imperfect. We read in Hebrews that the the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sins, but those sacrifices were only, only served as a reminder of sins and their need of a perfect lamb who would not only cover their sins, but would take them away. And that is what Jesus Christ has done for us. And when John the Baptist saw him coming, he cried out, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus Christ who existed uncreated, the second member of the Trinity, the Word who is God, who has always been with God, left the glory of heaven, was conceived by the Holy Spirit, was born of a virgin. He grew up as a boy and he grew in wisdom and stature. He was tempted in every way that you and I are tempted. One main difference, he was without sin. He was always obedient to the law of God. He was always submissive to the will of God, including this command from the Father himself, to lay down his life for sinners, to bear our sins in his own perfect and sinless body. And so when the time came, Jesus Christ went willingly and voluntarily to be crucified on a cruel cross. And there we see the just one, the only just one, the only righteous one dying for the unjust many. Bearing our sins, becoming sin, so that you and I might become the very righteousness of God. Jesus was crucified, he was murdered, he died, he was buried, and he was raised from the dead on the third day. And so today on this Sunday morning, we celebrate his death on the cross. Today we celebrate his resurrection from the dead, just as we do every Lord's Day. And here in a moment, we're going to sing that great modern hymn in Christ Alone by Keith Getty and Stuart Townend. I read a few years ago that the Presbyterian Church USA, the very liberal Presbyterian Church denomination, wanted to put this song in their denomination's new hymnal. But in order for it to be placed there, they wanted permission from Keith Getty and Stuart Townend to change some of the lyrics. Mary Louise Bringle, who chaired the Presbyterian Committee on Congregational Songs, wrote that some committee members objected to the line that says, and on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. The committee asked Getty and Townend if the lyrics could be changed to, and on that cross as Jesus died, the love of God was magnified. Well, praise God, Keith Getty and Stuart Townend said no. We won't allow it, saying that, they wrote in Christ alone to tell the whole gospel. Bringle wrote that most committee members did not want the new Presbyterian hymnal to suggest that Jesus' death on the cross was an atoning sacrifice that was needed to satisfy God's anger over sin. In other words, most committee members objected to the gospel of Jesus Christ. But that is what we celebrate when we take the Lord's Supper, amen? That is our hope. On the cross as Jesus died, the love of God was magnified when the wrath of God was satisfied. And so we're not going to stop singing this song here. 
and we're not going to change the words. So after I pray, we're going to sing that joy song, and I pray that we will sing with joy, with thanksgiving in our hearts. Let's pray. Lord, in Christ alone, that is our only hope. We are counting on you, Lord. We've placed all of our faith, all of our trust in Jesus Christ. The one who has always been, the eternal one, the one who was with God and the one who was God. The one who, when the fullness of time came, left the glory of heaven to become a man, was conceived by the Holy Spirit, was born of a virgin, who was born and grew up, growing in wisdom and stature. Lord, one who was tempted in every way that we are tempted, but was without sin. One who did miracles, one who did things that were unexplainable, instantaneous, undeniable. One who taught with authority like no one had ever taught before. One who preached the oracles of God and everyone marveled and was amazed. And Lord, the one who, when the day came, when the hour came, Lord, he willingly, voluntarily went to the cross for us laying down his life for us that we might be forgiven of our sin, that we might have everlasting life. Lord, we are grateful. We are thankful. We are overwhelmed by the gospel. Lord, you could have killed Adam and Eve and ended the human race and you would have been perfectly just to do so. But Lord, you are gracious, you are merciful, you are compassionate, and you are a forgiving God. But Lord, you forgive because of what your son did for us. There had to be a payment for sin. And it couldn't be by clothing ourselves with fig leaves or even putting on animal skins to cover our sin, Lord. There had to be the sacrifice of a perfect, spotless, blameless lamb of God. And Lord, we know that that person is Jesus Christ. All of our hope is in you. All of our hope is in Christ alone. And Lord, I would pray today if there's anyone here that does not know you, that has never placed their trust in Christ, Lord, cause them to see today that you are a holy God and that they are sinful, that they have missed the mark, they have fallen short of the glory of God and and Christ is their biggest threat, but he's also their biggest hope. And Lord, that you might be gracious to them and give them repentance of their sin and give them faith to believe in your son that they might be justified before a holy God. Lord, for us who do know you today, may we never tire, may we never grow weary thinking about the salvation that you have provided. Give us joy in our hearts, Lord. Help us to remember the day of our salvation. Help us to remember what you have saved us from. God himself, the wrath of God, you have delivered us. Lord, we will never know your wrath or your anger or your justice. We will only know your love and your grace and your mercy. Lord, cause us to worship you every day because of this truth. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.